0: The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit POMH.org. Good morning. If you have your uh, Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 9. We are going to pick up with where we left off last week in verse 19. Through this great journey through the book of Romans, Paul's epistle to this group, this group of people that he probably has never met most of them, but yet he wants to write to them. He's heard about their faith. Also, there's some uh, interesting dynamics going on within that church. So many Gentiles, so many Jews trying to get together. There's the schism about what they're supposed to do, what they're not supposed to do. And so all of this Paul is addressing. But as he does this, he is taking this opportunity to paint this grand picture of God's plan for humanity, God's plan of salvation. So as we study through this, we are learning more and more about our own salvation, um, what the foundation of it is, how we receive it, how we embrace it, how we live it out. And so that's the journey that we've been on, and we find ourselves here in verse 19. Now, Paul has introduced a lot of very controversial things throughout the last few weeks um, as we've studied these verses, especially when you get to the end of chapter 8. There seems to be this assumption as Paul brings that in that many of the Gentiles are going to get in to this kingdom of God and that many of the Jews will be left out. Well, of course, the Jewish readers are thinking, now wait a minute, I thought we were God's chosen people. Why is it so many of us will be left out in this? And so they begin to think about this, and Paul's addressing these questions that will obviously be in their heads. And really, what we are zoning in on is is God fair? Is God fair? Is he just in doing these things? And of course, uh, Paul is highlighting the mercy of God and the sovereignty of God. And as he highlights these things, he is inevitably answering the questions that are going to come up in the minds of those who are reading it. And so we continue with that. Last week we talked about um, him hardening Pharaoh's heart and, you know, is that just, you know, if God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, can Pharaoh be held responsible for the things that he's done? And of course we came to those conclusions of God can use anything for his glory and yet human responsibility, we're still responsible for our own sin. So in that same vein, from the conclusions we came to last week, he continues on into the verses that we have here. Look at verse 19 it says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist His will. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So again, Paul's highlighting, now he's jumping into the thick of it right here, right? I mean, he's just pulling it up. He's making it blunt. He's saying, I know exactly what you're thinking. Here's what you're asking yourself. Here's the conclusions that you're jumping to, but let me just throw this back at you. Let's remember who God is, okay? And so inevitably what Paul is doing here is trying to paint a picture for us to realize who we are versus who God is. I mean, has there ever been a, a piece of clay that's looked up at the artist and said, I don't really like the way you've made me? No, because it is the creator. It is the artist who determines what he wants to do, right? The, the, the clay has no say in it whatsoever. So Paul immediately paints that picture first and foremost. He says, let's set the stage. Let's remember who's God and let's remember who's not, first of all. Okay. But then he also begins to answer these questions and paint a bigger picture of who God is. So let's start with this. First of all, here's what we want to answer. Who is responsible for sin? Who is responsible for sin? Or who does the buck stop with, to use more common language? After what Paul has presented at the end of chapter 8 and into chapter 9, he started with this dialogue Uh, And it's a dialogue with an assumed person there. So in other words, he's not physically talking to someone here and, and writing down his conversation. He's assuming this person is here and assuming these questions that are coming up to that mind. So he's creating this dialogue, if you will. Um, he's asking and answering the questions that he knows are coming up in the minds of his readers. So in chapters nine through 11, he begins to answer those questions, specifically questions that are coming up in the Jewish believers mind that he may be writing to. And so they've been talking about this fact that God had hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the question then is, well, is Pharaoh responsible then? If God hardened his heart, how could God hold him responsible for the things that he does if God is the one who is controlling his actions? And and I love how one commentator said, he says, God is powerful enough to prevent our hearts from hardening, yet he allows them to harden anyway, is the assumption that these people are making. So when we think about the question that they are actually asking themselves and then the conclusions that they are jumping to, they are beginning to think about the fact that Well, if God is the one who hardens the heart, then isn't God then responsible for the action of a hardened heart? So in other words, if God causes the condition, whatever comes out of that condition, isn't God responsible for that? And so as we broaden this out and begin to think about how Paul is answering these questions, he is basically saying this. Yes, God is powerful enough to prevent our hearts from being hardened. And at the same time, he can allow them to be hardened anyway. And Paul says, yeah, that's absolutely true. Well, if that's the case, the person is responding to Paul, then how can God still find fault with people? If God is the one hardening their hearts that leads to their faults, who is ultimately to blame? And thus we go into verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So here's the issue that we have. God can only be just in judging sin if people are responsible for their own actions. Okay. Now God's sovereignty seems to put the blame squarely on him. But yet we see that he still judges people for their sin. And that's what creates the dilemma for so many people. So if God hardened Pharaoh's heart, or anyone's heart for that matter, then isn't the blame squarely on God? And not only that, but there's another question that's obvious here that Paul doesn't actually write down. He doesn't articulate it. And that is this. Is not God to blame for our sin? Now that's obviously heresy to say that, so Paul doesn't literally write it down, but you can hear that question in the writing. Paul's addressing that question even though he doesn't put it out there. This is a predictable trap um, that so often we get involved with when we begin to go down that road of asking those questions, when the created begins to blame the creator, okay? So by default, humanity is blame shifters, aren't we? I mean, that's naturally what we do. When we get in a predicament and something is wrong, and something doesn't go right for us, and we get caught in that, immediately, as humans, we want to deflect that to something else. We want to say, well, something else is responsible for what's happening with me. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, we see this highlighted from the very beginning, do we not, with the story of Adam and Eve. We see the creation blaming the creator ultimately. So in Genesis 3 chapter 11, God finds Adam and Eve and he's having this conversation. He knows what they've already done. They've eaten of this fruit of the forbidden tree. They're hiding from him. And he says to them in verse 11, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now this was a question that was aimed squarely at Adam. He's speaking specifically to Adam at this point. And Adam responds to him this way. The woman that you gave to me, okay, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. Now, what he should have said is what? Yes. Yes, I ate of that fruit. Notice it was very specific to him. Have you, Adam, have you eaten of this fruit? What is his response? The woman whom you gave me. I didn't ask you about the woman. I asked about you, right? But yet he wants to shift the blame. Now, women, we wish that Eve was completely innocent in this as well. But of course, when he addresses her, what does she do? She shifts the blame again, right? So it's like um, cosmic hot potato, Right, You know, you're playing that game and you keep passing the things around and you're like, ooh, 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 this thing is about to blow up I'm going to hand it to somebody else really quick. And that's what's going on here. So when he addresses her, we find out that she blames the serpent for that. In verse 13, the serpent deceived me and I ate of it. It's not her fault. It was the serpent's fault. Now notice that both of them do end up confessing, but they confess at the end after they've assigned the blame to someone else. Well, this is what happened. This was the situation. Here's what this person did to me. And then, yeah, I did do this. Now, think about that for a moment. In that narrative, the serpent never speaks, does he? God never addresses him or asks him any questions. But it's obvious that he, if, if he was allowed to speak, he would have stated the only logical conclusion that that line of thinking would lead to. He would say something like this. Of course I tempted them but aren't you the one that created me? Doesn't the buck stop with you, God? See, the blame just keeps getting passed down until ultimately you're going to end up with it squarely landing on God. So when it comes to passing the blame on sin, eventually all roads lead to God. In fact, there are only two agents that can be blamed for sin. The person who sinned, And God, that's the only two conclusions that you can come to. So when we sin, we should confess that sin for what it is. It is our responsibility. Otherwise, the blame will keep getting passed on because who wants to own someone else's sin, right? So if you blame me for your sin, I'm just going to turn around and hand it to somebody else. Because I don't want to be blamed for your sin. You don't want to be blamed for your sin. I certainly don't want to be blamed for it. So what happens is we get passed around and then we have to create a whole new uh, level of study called psychology, right? Because we keep passing these things around. So this is an assault on the goodness, the righteousness of God. This is exactly the road that our enemy wants us to travel down when we begin to ask these questions blaming God for sin itself. So blaming the only good in this world for all the evil that is produced. Attributing the works of evil to the work of God. So how do we stop from walking down that kind of road? How do we stop that line of thinking in our process of trying to understand our situations? Well, we have to take a different path than Adam and Eve did, obviously. Remember how I emphasized that Adam and Eve did confess their sin, but it was secondary to them assigning the blame to someone else first before they confessed that they actually did what they were accused of doing. Both of them offered excuses before they offered any kind of confession. Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, So what is emphasized in this was not the confession of their sin and thus the responsibility should have been with them and they would have owned the responsibility of that. Instead, the blame gets shifted before there's any confession that comes out of their mouth. Now, the path path that's less traveled is this. Instead of shifting the blame, Adam and Eve should have owned their own sin and they should have recognized the contributing factors that were involved in their poor decisions. In other words, really what you could do is take their response and switch the two things around. And then you have an honest evaluation of the situation. When he said to Adam, did you eat of this? He should have said, yes, I ate. And then let God say, why? Why? Well, Eve came to me. She brought it to me. It looked good. So I ate it. See, it starts with, I'm responsible for this. I did this. And yes, there were some contributing factors to why I did this. When he goes to Eve, did you eat? Yes, I ate. Why? Well, I was persuaded. I was tempted. I was tricked into this, but I did it. I made a choice to do this. Do you see the difference? Look, look at this with me. Confession A versus confession B here. Because of X, I sinned. Okay, that's confession A. That's what we see Adam and Eve doing. Confession B is I sinned. Why? Because of X. See, there's nothing wrong with recognizing that there are contributing factors to when we fall. Contributing factors when we fail, when, when we sin. There are things that contribute to that. In other words, if we were living in a vacuum and there was no one else around we probably wouldn't get angry at anyone else, right? Because it's not there. So when we realize, yes, there's a sin that I struggle with, and yes, there's a sin that I keep gravitating towards, it's okay to also recognize that there are environmental factors or there are situations or temptations that are contributing to me constantly giving into that sin. But I have to first start with, it's my choice. I chose to engage in this. I sinned. Yes, there are some reasons that I sinned, but I sin. You see, the first one provides an excuse for the action, whereas the second one provides an influence for the action. And those are two different things. So when we approach a situation from confession B, what we are doing is we are admitting our own sin and we're owning it. We recognize that there was some influence on our decision. Now what? Now, the beauty of this approach is We are now ready to receive forgiveness for our sin. And because we recognize that there were influences that contributed to our sin, we are now ready to better protect ourselves from engaging in this again. Whereas if we go from the first one, it's everybody else's fault. We will never do anything to protect ourselves from it again. Why? Because we never owned it to begin with. It's not my fault. It's their fault. And this is just who I am because those people that you put around me, they're the ones that make me like this. And so there's never any forgiveness and there's never any healing that ever takes place in our soul. Think about this from the perspective of marriage. One of the things I try to, when I do premarriage counseling, is the 50/50 rule. And that's the rule that the world wants us to engage in. And that's the rule the world teaches. That's how a marriage works. It's 50-50. So you do your part and I'll do my part. Well, the problem with the 50-50 relationship is no one actually identifies what the 50% is. It's all assumed. So we don't get together and say, okay, as we come together and we engage in this relationship and we are going to be partners in life and here's what we're going to do. You're going to be A, B, C, D. And we have this bullet list maybe going of what you're going to do. And then we never do that. So what we do is we go into it and we assume that other person is going to do all these things because obviously every person would know these are the things that you're supposed to do. Because we never talk about those things, what happens is we go into it going, yeah, you do your part, I'll do mine. And this person over here is thinking about their list of what they're supposed to do and they're doing all of it. The problem is their list doesn't match this other person's list, maybe two items on it. So this person is thinking they're not doing their part. And if they're not doing their part, I'm not going to do my part. And so they start holding back in that, right? So the 50-50 relationship is doomed to destruction because we never can articulate exactly why those kinds of things are happening. And and why we are not engaging in that kind of relationship, giving ourselves 100%. Here's the other thing, the problem with the 50-50 is this. There's 100% of you and 100% of the other person. So if you're only contributing 50%, there's a whole another 100% out there floating around that's unaccounted for, which that's where a lot of us get in trouble as well. And so in that 50-50 approach to relationships, we begin to make mistakes because we assume our situation is someone else's fault. My The situ- reason my marriage is so bad is that person is not doing what they're supposed to do. The reason my marriage is suffering is because that person is not pulling their weight. The reason my marriage is suffering is that person keeps spending too much money. That person stays away from home too much. That person isn't taking care of the kids. That person isn't around. And so whatever it is, we begin to point our fingers because it's always easier for us to find a weakness in someone else than it is to find it in ourselves. And so we shift the blame. And so this approach to marriage creates pride. It creates arrogance. It focuses on the weakness of that other person. But in the process of shifting the blame, we deny the only thing that actually can heal that relationship or heal that marriage. And that's repentance. That's when we come together and say, listen, this thing isn't working. And I know that I'm contributing a lot to the dysfunction of this marriage. And you know what? I need to repent and we need to sit down and have a conversation about the things that I'm doing wrong and how I can do these things better. And I need your help in this. You see, we have to own it. We have to take responsibility for what we have contributed to the situation. Only then can we be forgiven. Only then can our sin be forgiven. Only then can we truly take that ownership of our sin and apply it to Christ on the cross because he can only forgive confessed sin. You see, when we go through that process and we get to that point, we're then going to be afforded this opportunity for reflecting on why I sinned so that I can avoid that same dark valley in the future. See, the confession brings about true repentance and that True repentance brings about true forgiveness, and that's the healing part of that whole process. But there's also a healthy component to it as well. Once we move past the initial stage of passing the blame into repentance and we turn our excuse into our reason, then in the future, we will be aware of this weakness. And what we can do is we can gain accountability in those areas of our lives that we've now identified that we're weak in, right? So, had our first parents followed this example, Adam would not have blamed Eve. Instead, he would have better known how to shepherd his wife when the enemy comes in and tempts her. Had Eve not blamed the serpent, instead, she would have known better how to recognize his scheme, how to recognize and identify his cunningness. But instead, We shift the blame and there's never any healing. There's never anything gained from it. So we stay in this cycle of destruction that gets worse and worse and worse. You see, the events that lead us to sin are not excuses, but they are reasons that need to be understood to guard our hearts in the future. If we understand the reasons, then through repentance... And by God's grace, we will be better equipped to reject that temptation should it arise in the future. So otherwise, we will inevitably pass that blame on to someone else. And ultimately, that blame will falsely land on God because he's the last one that we can actually put that on. So that, that's the first perspective of this. Now, there's a second point, And that is as Paul brings up this idea of the potter and his clay. Look again at verse 20. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So, so Paul is addressing these things here. And inevitably, anyone who is looking for a reason to deny the goodness of God can skew this passage right here. And they could use it as, an, uh, as a weapon to attack the character of God. One could look at this and conclude from this this whole potter analogy that Paul uses here that we're just pawns in some cosmic game of chess and God randomly creates pottery that he either uses for his benefit or his glory or he smashes it to his benefit or his glory. And that brings us to ask this question, isn't God evil then? If he creates a piece of pottery, knowing that he's going to smash it because of some flaw in its integrity or in its intended purpose. And sadly, that is exactly the way many people view the sovereignty of God. And it's skewed. It's not right. They they think of God as, as arbitrarily creating some people for damnation and some people for salvation. And so if God is sovereign, then there's nothing you can do about it because he can do whatever he wants. And this leads us into all kinds of different theologies that have different terms like hyper-Calvinism or Christian fatalism or the more common person would call it duck duck damn." right? It's like God just playing this big, you know, everybody's in a circle and he's just going through and randomly selecting people. And if you're the duck, then you get in. If you're the, you, you end up being the goose, then you're out. And it's just like this random process that God's going through. And, and so that's where it leaves us. When we, when we view it from this skewed perspective and this view is so destructive because it leads us to this conclusion. If we are predestined to be sinners, then why is God so upset with my sin? And then what we can do is begin to rationalize our sin and go, you know what? God created me this way. He knows my environment and what I struggle with. I'm sure he's going to be okay with this. And even if he isn't, there's nothing I can do about it. This is the way God created me. And on the surface level, we can all see where this this line of thinking comes from, and we can even see when you take it from that perspective where it actually makes some sense. If God forms me into a toilet using the whole analogy of clay being molded to a, for a non glorious kind of perspective, you know, if, if God molds me into a toilet, then why would he get mad if I smell like, uh, stuff that goes into the toilet, right? I mean, why, why would he have a problem with that if that's what he's created me for there? And so from this perspective, God, the almighty and the sovereign creator can reach into humanity, the lump of clay and destined people, they're the vessels for salvation, honorable use or damnation, dishonorable use, okay? So, so this fatalistic perspective then leads us to conclude that what Paul is doing in these verses is explaining a solution to the paradox that's created when we begin to discuss the sovereignty of God and we try to put it next to human free will. The dishonorable vessels have no right to complain for the way that they were made. If a piano doesn't like the pianist's music, it's in no position to tell that musician to switch the pages on it, right? Right? But is that really what Paul's saying here? Is that really what he's trying to do? Is trying to make a solution to explain the sovereignty of God and human free will? Well, to quote Paul's past passages, absolutely not. By no means. Certainly not. See, let's start with what Paul is not saying, first of all. Paul is not attempting to resolve the tension created by the assumed paradox of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. That's not even his intention in this passage. Matter of fact, I love how one commentator says, he says, Paul is content to hold the truths of God's absolute sovereignty in both election and in hardening and of full human responsibility without reconciling them. We would do well to emulate his approach. The great C.H. Spurgeon once said, I never have to reconcile friends. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility have never had a falling out with each other. I do not need to reconcile what God has joined together. Do you see this? So we're trying to reconcile something that's never had a falling out. God's character is not at war with himself. His character is just in every respect. So what both of these statements recognize is that Paul is simply embracing both divine sovereignty and human responsibility as it's taught in scripture. So when Paul uses this analogy of a potter and his clay creations, he's not trying to reconcile sovereignty and free will. Matter of fact, Paul has accepted the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And now he's attempting to comprehend, not rationalize, this assumed paradox in terms of Israel's salvific history. The second thing is this. We have to look at the context of what Paul is talking about here, where he's coming from. And it is especially helpful when we're dealing with situations like this. Paul has already shown us how God can use negative situations to bring about Glory for his name and for his purpose. He's talked about Ishmael. He's talked about Esau. He's talked about these these sons and grandsons of Abraham. He's talked about Pharaoh and how Pharaoh has had his heart hardened and how God used that to bring glory to his name. Now Paul's getting ready to add to this list, and this is a shocker for his readers, he's going to add to this list unbelieving Jews to the same list with Esau Esau. Ishmael, Pharaoh, when Paul says this, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Paul's going back to these old Testament passages. He's referring to passages that they would have been very familiar with. And it appears that Paul is referencing very specific passages passages about the analogy of a potter and his creation of clay. And so those are found in Isaiah 29, 16, Isaiah 45, 8, and 10, and Jeremiah 18, 6, where that same analogy is used in the Old Testament. Now, all of these passages use that same pottery analogy. They use it to explain God's ultimate sovereignty and bringing about his purposes. So it's obvious that Paul is going back and referencing this same analogy. But let's focus on one in particular, and that is from Isaiah chapter 29, which has a lot of messianic overtones to it. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 16, God breaks vessels, but listen, in the same passage, he promises to rebuild them. Paul quotes Isaiah 29, 16 verbatim in the first six words of his sentence. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? You see, in this passage, God is lamenting over Jerusalem, referred to in the psalm as Ariel, okay, which means lion of God. So very soon there was going to be this devastation and this destruction at the hands of their enemies. And that's all in accordance to the will of God. Look at what it says in Isaiah 29 verse 2. I will distress Ariel... And there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around, and will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you. Notice that it is the Lord that through all of these actions of the enemies coming against Jerusalem. Notice again, look at those words. I will encamp against you, even though it will actually be the enemy that encamped camps against them. I will besiege you, even though it's the enemy that will physically come in and besiege them. I will raise these siege works against you, even though it is the enemy that's going to come in and do these things. You see what I'm saying? And so God says, this is what's going to happen to you, but I am behind these things. I'm using these people. Now follow this. God will not only attack Jerusalem, but he would see the attack all the way through by affecting the senses of the people. In other words, follow me on this. God would do something to them to accomplish his will. See if this sounds somewhat familiar to what we've been studying the last couple of weeks. Isaiah twenty nine ten, For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. So God created a situation where they can't even see what's happening. They've become numb to it. They have fallen asleep. There are no more warnings going off. They are content with their life the way it is. And they have no idea that destruction is right around the corner. Like the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, God would dull the senses of Israel. Why? In order to achieve his purpose, which is what? A judgment of destruction. In the language that Jeremiah uses, Jeremiah chapter 19 verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, so I will break his people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. So when we look at these two different passages of scripture, what God does to Pharaoh really isn't all that different than what he's done to Israel. He promises that the city of Jerusalem was going to be used as a vessel of destruction or a vessel of dishonorable use. Why? Well, God goes on to explain in the next couple of verses in isaiah twenty nine look at isaiah twenty nine verse thirteen because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and the f- and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. You know what they're thinking back in the day when they heard those words, right? Wait a minute, that's not fair. How can God use his enemies for an honorable use and use his chosen people for a dishonorable use? This is the same exact thing that Paul is addressing for his Jewish kinsmen of his day in that first century. But the answer to the Jews of Isaiah's day, Paul is saying, is the same answer to the Jews of his day. Verse 16 of Isaiah 29. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. In other words, the clay is looking at the potter going, you don't know what you're doing. So God, the almighty sovereign creator would reach into humanity. Follow me on this. They're the lump of clay to use enemy nations. Now they're the vessels for attacking Jerusalem there. He's using the enemies for honorable use while the city would come over this deep sleep. So now Israel is being used for dishonorable use to ensure the attack was seen all the way through. Now, if the story ended there, it would be very dark, wouldn't it? It would be very morbid, to say the least. But there's actually hope for even the vessel that's being used for dishonorable use. In this same passage, Isaiah, God reminds the people of his promises. Look at Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14, and specifically verses 22 through 24. It says this, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. But look at verse 22. Jacob shall no more be ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands and his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding and those who murmur will accept instruction. So it's like their eyes are opened once again and they waken up to see the truth of who God is and they respond to it. So the vessel of Jerusalem begins the story as a vessel of dishonorable use and yet they end the story as a vessel of honorable use. In fact, the story of God's people ends, scripture tells us, when they no longer face shame, when they worship God's name, when they worship the Messiah, when they stand in awe of God, when they come to an understanding and when they accept instruction. That's what we see. So the story of God's people ends with their redemption, not their destruction. See, it's always God's purpose to use all vessels to achieve maximal good for his maximal glory. See, Jerusalem had the responsibility of representing God to the rest of the world, but they had turned from that and they were misrepresenting God to the rest of the world. So she was created for noble use, but found herself being used for ignoble or dishonorable purposes. Yet what we see is that God still worked through Jerusalem's sin to bring about his will, to bring about the ultimate salvation of his covenant people through the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel. Matter of fact, we see in Isaiah 29, verse 18, in that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Now, if we go to Jeremiah 18, we see the same picture of God forms and reforms the Gentiles for honorable use. In Jeremiah 18, the hope for dishonorable vessels being reformed into honorable vessels is actually attributed to the Gentile nations. Listen to what he says. This is in Jeremiah 18. Uh, chapter 18, verse 1. This is the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Now listen and follow me in this. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and, and there he was working at his wheel, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. So this explanation that God gives to Jeremiah of this scene that he's literally watching as this potter is working on his wheel and all of a sudden the whole thing collapses. You've seen that before, right? Somebody's working on it, maybe they're giving a demonstration and they do something intentionally sometimes just to show you how the whole thing just kind of falls apart. So this is what he sees. And all of a sudden he notices that the potter grabs that same mold of clay and he starts creating something different. And this time it becomes a piece of pottery. And so he uses this illustration to tell Jeremiah this very specific thing. And this is the point that Paul is getting to in Romans chapter 9. You see, the Jews believed that they were being formed for good, honorable purposes, while the Gentiles were being formed for evil or dishonorable purposes. The Jews were the honorable vessels represented by Jacob, Moses, while the Gentiles were the dishonorable vessels represented by Esau and Pharaoh. Yet, right here, Paul, through Jeremiah, is flipping the script. It is the Gentile nations who have a chance of being reformed from dishonorable to honorable use. And it's the Jews who are at risk at being tossed aside. You see, Jeremiah says the nations were spoiled and that the potter has every right to toss it out, to be plucked up, to be broken, to be destroyed. But in his mercy, in the kindness of God, this potter reserves the right to reform something beautiful out of something that has been destroyed. If they repent, if they turn from their evil. This is why Paul asked the following question. Look at verse 22 of Romans chapter 9. What if God... Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even as whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Do you see how again, Paul is highlighting the mercy of God? Perhaps the Jews, instead of looking at the tree, should be looking at the whole forest. God has, from the very beginning, had in mind the inclusion of the Gentiles into the grand plan of salvation. God is reforming the nations into honorable vessels to be used and to declare his glory. Even beyond that, if Israel did not sober up and place their faith in the true message of salvation through Jesus Christ, they would be at risk of becoming a vessel of destruction. Now, if you don't believe Paul, Paul says, go back to the Old Testament and just listen to Hosea. Listen to Isaiah. And that's what he does in Romans 25, verses 25 through 29. He's just going back and showing you, this isn't just me talking about this. This is something that precedes me. Look at what he says in verse 25. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. is a potter who creates and who destroys and who recreates. This is what Paul wants us to understand. So we go back to our passage in Romans 9. Paul's been addressing these Jewish brothers of his about the predicament. So many of the unbelieving Jews in their day and time, they have not accepted Christ, Jesus Christ as their Messiah. There's this influx of Gentiles that are joining the church because they are readily accepting Christ as the Messiah. Paul wants them to know that their Jewish heritage is not going to save them. Their nationality is not going to save them. Their goodness, their obedience to the law is not going to save them. In fact, Paul has gone to great lengths to convince his Jewish kinsmen that God doesn't even need to save them. In fact, Paul has illustrated how God can actually use them in a negative sense to bring about salvation. And Paul will soon bring his argument full circle And he's going to say that this is what God is actually doing in their day and time. That God has used their disobedience to bring many Gentiles into spiritual Israel and into the blessing of salvation. So when we try to wrap our minds around the sovereignty of God, we always have to make room for the fact that he is a God who creates, destroys and then graciously recreates. You see Jerusalem was created for God's glory. It's created to be a vessel of honorable use. But she failed in that endeavor. So God made her a vessel of dishonorable use. But the story didn't end there. God promised a future day when the Holy One of Israel would undo all that had been done to make Jerusalem a vessel of dishonorable use. Very true, God broke Jerusalem in a way that, as it said in Jeremiah 1911 that we read, in a way that it can never be mended. But he did this so that Jerusalem would understand she cannot mend herself, that it cannot be mended by any man, but it would only be through the power of God. Only God could fix and restore Jerusalem. Her bright future was not in her own hands Her future was in the hands of God. When examining both the honorable and the dishonorable vessels, one commentator comes to this very succinct and good conclusion here. I think it's very helpful. The only sensible course for each one, whether menial pot or treasured bowl, bowl, is to submit in creaturely humility before the divine potter. And perhaps by implication to submit thereby also to his power to remake. Does God make honorable vessels? Yes, very clear from the text. Does God make dishonorable vessels? Yes, very clear from the text. But the most important thing to remember is this, God makes broken vessels new. Peter reminds us of this this precious truth in a passage that we're probably very familiar with in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God can do whatever he wants. He wants to forgive, he wants to save, and he wants to restore. That's what we know of the God of Scripture there's this very interesting art. It's called kintsugi. Say that with me. Oh, kintsugi, right? It's a Japanese form of art. And I always have that in the mind uh, that i um, going to the, I love going into the hibachi grill. And uh, the guy, they, you know, they always get into it. And they, I mean, if you get a good chef, man, he gets into, it. it's so awesome. But I always imagine that guy, my favorite one that I go to, I imagine that guy saying that. But anyway, it's called kintsugi. And kintsugi is an art where they take pottery. And actually, let me give you a little bit of history on this. It goes way back into the days of the emperor, thousands and thousands of years ago, when they would have these very precious pieces of pottery. And when they would break, they had these ways of stapling it back together. So they would put these little staples into the pottery and it would hold those pieces together. Well, the emperor thought that looked a little trashy. And so he said, we're going to go out to the artists and say, let's, let's do something better than that. And so they came up with this form of art. So they would take these broken pieces of pottery. They would then put them back together, fashion them back together. And then they would take pure gold and they would put it in the cracks of the pottery. And so they would repaint if you will, the cracks of the broken pottery to make it usable again. Okay, so that's the background of that. And I I love this because it's such a a fitting illustration of exactly what Paul is talking about here. So when you're finished remaking this piece of pottery, there are actually these veins of, of gold throughout the pottery. And many consider the recreated pottery much more beautiful than the first piece. I, I have a couple pieces here to show you. Go ahead to the. Um, you see these different pieces. If you look at them, let me see where ones I can look at. Okay, you can see that one on the bottom left. You see that. You can see where it was broken, and then the gold pulls it back together. You can see the one on the upper right very clearly. A shattered piece of pottery, and yet you can see the brokenness where it was broken, where it was pulled back together. And now, not only is the pot back together, but think about this. It's worth way more now than it was before. Why? Because now it is infused with gold all the way through in the places that it once was broken. I mean, you can't help but look at one of these vessels and not recognize that it was once broken, right? I mean, you can see it very clearly. You can see the lines and it it, it looks exactly like a broken piece of pottery. And yet therein is exactly where its beauty lies. The Kintsugi vessel is beautiful because, why? Although it was first broken, there was love and attention and affection that pieced it back together. And not only that, it has been sealed with a very precious metal. So when you look at those gold cracks, you can tell that little piece of pottery has quite a disastrous past. But at the same time, it's also very evident that someone loved it enough to put it back together and to give it worth and value and purpose. You see, when we understand this and how it applies to us, we understand that we're all broken vessels. We have to come to the conclusion that we are sinners. We are guilty of the sin that we've committed. It's not anybody else's fault, but mine. I've made the choice. Were there influences in it? Absolutely. Were there circumstances that 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 helped me along to make that decision? Absolutely. But the decision was mine. I made it, I own it, I'm a sinner, and I need to repent. And now, in the point of repentance, I am broken. But when I'm broken, I'm in the perfect place for the master potter to put me back together and give me the greatest worth that I could possibly have. That's where healing comes in. You see, when we are broken vessels, we have to be put back together by God's love. And isn't it an incredible picture that the places that we are broken, it is the blood of Christ that mends those cracks. It is the blood of Christ that holds us and gives us our meaning and our purpose and our value because of what he did for us. We are in him. We are his and our value, our inheritance, our standing with God is all because of what he has done, how he has remade us. Ephesians 1, 7, Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Amen. When we think about this beautiful image, Paul is not trying to reconcile the sovereignty of God and human free will. What he's trying to do is for us to draw our eyes off of something that we're never humanly going to completely understand and just be okay with what scripture teaches. And he wants us to focus on the character of God and say, yes, you can't understand this completely, but look at his character. Can't you trust him? Trust him that he's going to make these things work out. Trust him that he is fair. Trust him that he is merciful. Trust him that all these things are true, that he desires for all to come to salvation. And so, you know, some things can only exist in the mind of God because it's so much bigger than ours. But God gives us enough to walk each day. And the things that we need to draw from this is number one, we are guilty of sin. We have to own our own sin and quit shifting that blame to someone else. And when we come to that point where we can admit that we are sinners, we are in the perfect place to receive forgiveness and to receive healing and to create accountability that will protect us from that sin harming us any longer. That's the beauty of salvation. That's what Paul wants us to focus on. And that's what we have to celebrate through the person of Christ. Amen. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what you brought into this room with you, but I hope that this message gives you encouragement to walk out of this building today and understand what's real and true and what's not. To understand who you are because of what your creator says you are, not who you are because of what someone outside this room says you are. I hope that you can embrace this truth, that it can be real to you. And I pray that if there's anyone here within the sound of my voice today who doesn't embody these truths, maybe you've been spending every day up to this point blaming everyone else for yours. And today you've now realized you've come face to face with it, and you say, That's me. That's what I've been doing. And you know what? It hasn't worked for me. I'm unhappy. I'm depressed, I'm struggling all the time with accepting myself and accepting my reality and that's who I've been and today needs to be the day that I lay all that aside that I confess I am a sinner so that I can be forgiven and so that I can be healed and so that I can be put back together. If that's you today, I pray that today is the day of your salvation. I don't know who you came with, but grab them and just tell them what's going on in your heart. Grab one of the pastors if you want to. We'll be hanging around afterwards. There'll be some people back here in the corner to my left. If you're looking at me, it'd be your right back corner, right as you exit out into that main lobby and they'll be there to pray with you. If you have anything you want to pray about, questions you want to ask, that's why they're there. So that today, as you hear the word of God, you can then respond to it. Don't leave this place without responding to the truth that the word of God presents to us. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your great love. Lord, we know that you are just in all things. And we know that your wrath is deserved for us, for our people, for all humanity. And yet it is your grace and your mercy that gives you so much patience with us. God, thank you for being a patient God with such a stubborn, obstinate people. Lord, not only Israel, us, all of us, Lord, all of your children, but we are so thankful for the cross. We are so thankful for Christ, the Messiah. We're so thankful for salvation. God, it's something that maybe we take for granted each and every day, but we never should. What you have afforded us is the greatest thing we'll ever experience in this life. If we could just truly repent of our sins and accept it. God, I know I stand before you as a broken piece of pottery, but I thank you for the process of salvation and sanctification that puts pieces of my life back together and makes them more beautiful than they ever could have been before. God, thank you for your consistent patience, but also for your faithfulness to all your promises. Lord, we know that you're gonna work these things out. We look forward to understanding our salvation even more, understanding Israel and where she fits into this whole narrative as well. But Lord, ultimately, we just wanna know you more. We want our hearts to just flood with your goodness and love and to understand it, to embrace it, to let it overflow from us into the people and relationships that you've given us influence with in this world so that we may be vessels of honorable use. To take the glory of your gospel truth to the people around us. May you be honored. May you be glorified because of your faithfulness to us. We ask in Jesus' name.